Good morning. If you'd like to turn with me, we will be reading from Psalm 54 this morning. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. This is the word of God. Once again, we read a psalm where David's words offend our enlightened minds. So in Psalm 53, he was calling godless people or atheists or agnostics fools. Now here in Psalm 54, he is praying that his enemies get theirs. So another uncomfortable prayer uttered by David. Uh, Psalm 54, look at verses 5 and 7. We'll start right in the thick of the prayer. He writes, uh, he prays, God will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. He says in another place, my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Now, it's, it's, you know, we may think, well, that's not very spiritual at all, is it? That's not morally refined. It's actually, some people may think, just the very problem that I have with the Bible. Or you might believe in the truth of the Bible and the authority of the Bible, but you look at a passage like this and you don't know what to make of it, right? You, what do we think of language like that? Second only to God in the Psalms is the presence of enemies. Eugene Peterson writes in a very helpful book he wrote on the Psalms. I'll mention it again later. So God is the number one subject in the Psalms, but solid second place, Eugene Peterson says, are enemies, adversaries. And I actually think that that's really helpful. It, it comes across as disturbing at first, but I think it's actually helpful. Look, we are, we are a society filled with young men committing violent crimes in schools and churches and synagogues. We are a secular culture that has become bankrupt of healthy ways to process our anger and our shame. But the Psalms show us that prayer is the primary outlet to deal with our heaviest thoughts. The Psalms show us that prayer is the, the primary outlet to process our shame, our anger, and our most frustrating, complicated thoughts. The things that we don't want to squeak out. And when they do leak out of us, there are a lot, lot of negative consequences. You can actually bring the hardest things in your soul to God because he can handle it. He can handle it. Quite often, you and I cannot. And when things leak out inappropriately, a lot of other people cannot handle the most complex and uh, complicated uh, feelings and emotions in us, but you can bring them to God in prayer 
because he can handle it. So I want to talk about three ideas, your troubles, your prayers, and your hope. The believer's troubles in this life, the believer's prayer life, and finally, the hope that the believer has because of a rich, honest, authentic prayer life. So, and I want you to understand, a good prayer life doesn't mean you pray well verbally or audibly. What I mean by a good prayer life is it's real, it's honest, and it's existent. Like, it happens on a regular basis so that it becomes a habit and a way of life for you, okay? So, the Psalms, um, actually, let's, let's expand it, not just the Psalms, but what the Psalms talk about, especially the, the, the Psalms, like the 50s, the, we're in 54. Uh, David's whole life, and let's expand it even further, the nation of Israel, its ancient history, okay? A ton of trouble. David's life and the national history of his, of his nation record a ton of trouble. So we have to place the troubling content of Psalms like this within their troubling context. We have to see what's going around, what was happening. Where, does, where is this language rising out of? Well, ancient Israel was a chosen nation by the God of the universe, but let's be honest, Israel was this small country surrounded by world empires and bullies. That was the situation always on their best day when they were most prosperous and most successful as a nation. They were still surrounded by world-class empires and bullies. Now, David's personal life before he became a king was dominated by warfare. He was a warrior. And after that, he was on the run. Uh, you heard Avery say this earlier to the kids. David was running and hiding from cave to cave, ravine to ravine, running for his life because King Saul was trying to kill him. Once David was king, he still faced opposition and, um, and uh, a lot of Saul's loyalists tried to undermine his, his, his uh, kingship. Even his own son Absalom performed a coup on his own throne. So trouble, in a sense, defines so much of David's life and so much of uh, Israel's history. As a matter of fact, and some of us know this, it was centuries of slavery and then wilderness wanderings uh, that dominated Israel's national memory. So trouble was just kind of a way of living for the ancient Israelites and very much for King David as well. So we shouldn't actually be surprised when David's prayers weren't these, you know, docile, pithy moralisms worthy to be embroidered on the hand towels in our bathrooms. These are honest, ugly, difficult, real prayers. Actually, David's prayer requests, you know, quite often they're more at home tattooed on a biker's forearm. That, that, this is really, like, not, not your bathroom towels, Right? But the bicep of a, of a guy in a biker gang, that's where these prayer requests belong. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. Now, if you think that David or the Psalms are morally inferior to today's woke sensibilities, I want you to listen more carefully. When you look at David's life, when you read books in the Old Testament like First and Second Samuel, do that. That's a great thing. Maybe if you don't know what to do in the Bible next, here's a good, here's a good place to start. I wouldn't say if, if you've never read the Bible, don't start here. Go to Mark 
or John in the New Testament, but if you've been there already and you're looking for your next place to go, read First and Second Samuel, learn all about David's life from childhood till he became a king and then uh, right before his death. And you can learn, you will see that the same David who wrote God zap him, right, handed to them God, he could show great restraint towards his enemies and adversaries. David would not kill Saul. Although Saul was hunting him, trying to murder him, David, at least twice we know, had he had a clean shot. He had a clear shot, no wind, <laughs> no, no obstructions. He had a clear headshot on Saul, and he didn't take the shot, at least twice that we know of. And then after Saul and his son Jonathan died, David would not execute all of Saul's family, even though it was perfectly customary to do that with a regime change. David would not even permit his officials later in his kingship to execute a puny little man who was cursing him in public and throwing rocks at him and, and uh, throwing dirt at him. Can you imagine? Throwing rocks at the king throwing dirt at the king, cursing the king out publicly. And David wouldn't even let his officials execute the man. So not always. Look, David is no saint. You will find some surprising things about him if you read First and Second Samuel. Not always, but often David showed a lot of mercy and forgiveness towards his enemies who had wronged him. So there's at least more to consider. If you're offended by what David is saying, at least pause for a second and realize there's more to consider. David's life is more complex, like, yours, like, like you're a complex person. We're all complex people, so is David. There's more to see here with David's life, with his disturbing prayer requests. Eugene Peterson, in his really helpful book on the Psalms called Answering God, says this, the people who practice the kind of prayer you see in the Bible they yell and they gesture. Prayer is combat, Eugene Peterson wrote. He said there are harmonies to be experienced in prayer, but they are all achieved harmonies, not natural ones. Entering into prayer doesn't all of a sudden mean that we levitate in moral tranquility. We usually start prayer in distress. Authentic prayer, legit prayer, Honest prayer, from the Bible's perspective, it doesn't ignore our troubles. It, it's, it, it comes out of our troubles. Honest, legit prayer is born from our troubles. Now, back to the question, how could, a, how could David, or any of us for that matter, how could he, act, you know, a man who acted so graciously and mercifully towards his enemies, how could he yet in his prayers desire for their destruction and their end? Right? Like, like what, what do we do with that tension? Well, this is how David could, could show mercy to his enemies and yet pray that they would get theirs at the same time. Because prayer is the arena where we first wrestle with our ugliest thoughts. We bring our ugliest thoughts to God in prayer. We start there. That's the first arena. I was thinking about this this week, going back to my my. my boyish childhood watching WWF wrestling, prayer is like the steel cage wrestling match where we confront our raw emotions. And God is there, but he's not the opponent. 
He's our coach. He's our trainer. He's in our corner as we're trying to wrestle out our ugliest thoughts. Prayer is that steel cage where we battle our thoughts in the presence of God. David had a robust prayer life. He kept God inundated with his running thoughts and emotions. Now, when I perform a random stream of consciousness on my loved ones, uh, in my anxiety, that is not helpful. It's not helpful to them, no matter how helpful I think it is. Right? What David's doing is he's taking that random stream of dark and difficult thoughts and he's bringing them to God. His feelings, his emotions, all the heavy stuff that he carried around in his soul. Have you ever done that? Your anger, your grief, your depression. The Psalms are full of people doing this. Jealousy, cynicism, hopelessness. The Psalms are full of people taking all of this stuff into the steel cage arena of prayer with God. Look at verses two and three. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men who seek my life. David made it his normal routine. Call it a rhythm, right? Like with musicians, rhythm is something, it keeps happening. There are variations to it, but a rhythm is a pattern. David made it the rhythm of his life, the pattern of his life. It was a routine in his day, in his hours, in every circumstance to take it to the Lord in prayer. If you sang out of a hymnal in the 70s and 80s and earlier, you remember the song, the refrain, take it to the Lord in prayer. And that's what David did, even in Psalm 54. And by doing this, by doing this, like taking it to the Lord in prayer, even our darkest, most disturbing emotions and thoughts, by doing that, we temper those wild emotions before we act, before we speak. We wrestle them out in the presence of a God who can handle them. So my challenge to you, my invitation to us, is to bring God in on the difficult relationships in your life. Bring God into the most anxious and fearful dynamics you are living through and ask him for his help. The Jewish rabbi and, uh, I guess, leadership coach, Edwin Friedman, in, in his book called A Failure of Nerve, he described what he called emotional triangles, the emotional triangles of our lives. And uh, just as an, this is how he defined an emotional triangle. Um, an anxiety-driven relationship, relationships, because we are all living through many emotional triangles at the same time. They are anxiety-driven relationships between each other and our personal problems or our shared problems. So for example, two parents, a mother and a father, may be wrestling with how to parent a wayward child and having conflict with one another in fear and anxiety over that child's power over their relationship and household. Or a leader is struggling to perform his job well or relate to others in the workplace because of his chronic illness that impairs his ability to do certain things and to be certain things for certain people. And if you know me well, that relational triangle, emotional triangle, has been a big part of my life for the last decade and more. And there are all sorts of examples that he gives of relation, uh, sorry, emotional triangles. 
But Friedman says that these triangles, they form inevitably. It's just the way the world works. It's the way fallen people are. We get ourselves into these triangles all the time. And here's the thing. They are characterized by a lack of what he calls differentiation. Don't lose me. I'm I'm not trying to lose you. Stick with me for a second. They are characterized by a lack of differentiation. What he meant by differentiation was my ability to know where I end and you begin. Not my desire to ignore you and not be a part of your life and not help you in your problems, but my ability to distinguish myself from you and those problems so that I can be helpful and objective but not get sucked into the dysfunction that you're struggling with. If I can maintain differentiation between me and those I'm in conflict with or between me and problems that plague me in my life, I am less likely to get caught up indefinitely in emotional triangles. And what gets us out of those triangles is the ability to differentiate ourselves in a relationship or from a particular problem or fear that we have. Now, a friend of mine from my last church, he's a a Christian, um, a Christian psychologist, Mark Good, wrote a book called Real Talk, and this is what's so interesting. He says that in a difficult relationship, what we must do is triangle God into the relationship. Triangle God into the relationship. Invite God into that uncomfortable space, whether you want to envision a steel cage wrestling match or whether you want to envision uh, you know, the, the conference table at work or, or the living room couch. You know, or, or maybe you know, you're in the driver's seat and your child is driving. You know, learning how to drive or something like that. I don't know. Find, a, find something to picture where it's a place of fear and anxiety and discouragement where the, the, most, the most difficult, problematic, and shameful, and discouraging, and confusing emotions and thoughts boil up inside of you. And Mark Good says, triangle God into that. Invite God into that space through prayer. And the amazing thing is, is that's exactly what David is doing. We let God into the ring with us and our troubles. Eugene Peterson said, our hate needs to be prayed, not suppressed. See, we think that it is spiritually immature to show emotion, and so we hide it sometimes. But we don't deal with it. It's still there. Emotionally, physiologically, all that difficult stuff is still in, we're carrying it around, even if we don't express it. But while we carry it around, it needs to be prayed, not ignored. And, and fill in any other word for hate, grief, sorrow, jealousy, envy, lust, whatever it is, it needs to be prayed, not suppressed, Eugene Peterson wrote. Sadly, though, we bring all of our unsorted emotions, our disorganized thoughts, into other arenas first, don't we? There are all sorts of arenas. There are all sorts of wrestling mats in our lives. And we bring them there instead. Our kitchen tables, our bedrooms, the conference room at work, definitely on social media, right? I mean, the last decade of our lives, right? It's, it's like, so the social media universe is littered with uh, uh, 
figuratively speaking, dead bodies and, and limbs that we've all lost because we don't know how to process our complicated emotions and feelings before we post or tweet something. That, that's the ring we go to instead of taking it to the Lord in prayer first. It is the height of misunderstanding. It's, it's the height of misunderstanding God to omit our difficult emotions from our prayer life. As though he doesn't already know we're thinking them and carrying them around. As if we think that somehow he can't handle them. David said in a different psalm, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Psalm 139. It's easy to criticize David's brute honesty. Right? It's easy to look at the psalms the angry psalms in moral smugness and say that's not what the world needs today. I told you religion was the source of so much conflict. Well, yeah, sometimes it is. But I'm telling the people are not murdering one another and canceling each other on social media because they're reading the psalms. At least David brought his untamed thoughts to God before he acted on them before he let them inform his words. At least he's bringing them to God. At least he knows they're there. At least he's doing something with them. What are you doing with them? Do you know they're there? Do you have any self-awareness to know all the stuff that you're wrestling with internally? Or does everybody else see it? You have a gift. The God of the universe is listening. And he wants you to take all of that sludge to him. He can handle it. Would, would, is it better to brood in hatred than to confess that hatred to a God who actually can handle it well and then redirect it more effectively? Back to that hymn, Joseph Scriven, and some of you will remember it. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Everybody sang that in church when I was like eight years old. It was like the most boring sounding song I ever heard. And now I'm like, wow, that's wisdom. That's wisdom. I'm going to be singing it for the rest of my life. What we gain in an honest prayer life, remember I said honest, not eloquent, forget that honest. What we gain in an honest prayer life is hope. That's the, that's the rest of this. We've talked about our troubles. We've talked about going to God in prayer through our troubles, but here is hope because none of this works without hope. David is not just praying angry thoughts. He's filled with hope in a God who saves. Look at how the whole prayer starts. Oh God, save me by your name. And he says, vindicate me by your might. Notice he doesn't say, now equip me to vindicate myself here. He could have done that. He was the king. But again, what does he do? Restraint. There's all this restraint in him. He's wrestling internally with the hate and the anger. That's, he's filled with hope. He said, God, I got all this garbage in me. Before I let them have it, you take it. I want you to imagine those words 
like somebody's saying them in, they're crying them out, right? In your worst moments, when you've been arguing or crying and you've lost your voice, I want you to imagine them being prayed audibly by somebody who has lost their voice and they're in tears and they've got snot coming down and they're crying that out to God. You ever been there? David was there and he goes to God first. That's hope. He says, I have somebody to talk to. I have a place to deliver all of this stuff. There's somebody who can carry it. There's somebody who can listen without judging me when they hear what's actually going on in here. The act of prayer, the habit of prayer, it actually gives us hope. So it's this, it's this cycle. We go to God with hope, and then he gives us hope by listening. It's because God is mighty to save. It's because God is patient to bear with those emotions of ours and, and he is wise to sort through them and to filter out the dross and to give us what is useful. What is useful. And now, as Jesus said in Matthew 7, now once the log has been removed and you're not blinded anymore by your own stuff, now you can go and help somebody because you've taken it to the Lord in prayer first, because you've dealt with all the hate and the anger and the jealousy and the resentment and even the somewhat self-righteous indignation, you've, 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 you've brought that to God first. But for the Christian among all people, this is what makes you different, Christian. Your hope comes from knowing what Jesus endured. This is what we have that David didn't have. He hoped he hoped, he absolutely believed that God understood him, but now we know he does because we look back on a cross. We look back in history to a cross where we see that God is mighty to save, he is patient to deal with our emotions, and he's wise enough to sort them out when we cannot. The sinless son of God, as a human being, was able to accomplish your salvation because he lived a life of honest prayer. Right? He, I mean, if you read the Gospels, they're looking for Jesus. They can't find him. He's always out somewhere praying by himself to his heavenly Father. He lived a rhythmic life of prayer. Jesus was a human being, fully God and fully human. You don't think he dealt with difficult emotions? He got angry. He got sad. He was righteously indignant at times. He always took it to his heavenly Father in prayer. You see, he was always, check this out, he was always differentiated. He was always able to triangle, triangle God into every anxious situation and dynamic. He was able to distinguish himself from Peter when Peter's mouth would fly off. He was able to distinguish himself from the Pharisees. He was able to distinguish himself from Pontius Pilate and had the ability to let Pilate sentence him to death and at the same time say to him, my kingdom is not of this world. That's differentiation. Knowing the difference between you and me. Knowing the difference between this world and the kingdom of God. Knowing the difference between your own wisdom and leaning on his. And Jesus always did that. He always triangled his heavenly father into the tense stressful dynamic in which he found himself. And a lifetime of doing that led him to the cross where he was able to hang there and ask God for mercy 
upon his executioners. The only thing that ever frightened Jesus, this is amazing, what's the one thing that he absolutely was petrified of? The one thing made him sweat blood, being separated from his heavenly father. I mean, that is a life, that, that is the true life for a believer. The only, the only dynamic that ever gets you off your game is the thought of being separated from God. And that's the source of our hope in prayer as Christians. Jesus hung alone on the cross so that you would never be alone in your troubles. And now that's the hope that you have going into a life of prayer. No one else of any religion has that kind of hope that Jesus took that place on the cross for you. Paul told Timothy, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. 1 Timothy chapter 3. He said, Jesus was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. You see that? He was he was made a human being who lived a physical, a true life. He died on a cross. And then it says, scholars believe, vindicated by the Spirit means God raised him from the dead. And that was his vindication. Right? He, Jesus prayed. This is amazing. Jesus didn't, like David, pray for vengeance upon his enemies. He prayed for their forgiveness. And then God vindicated him. God proved that he was innocent. God proved that he was wise. God proved that Jesus was perfect by raising him from the dead. And so you see now the hope goes further. It, it, the hope goes further than just, I have a God who listens. J David had that. The hope goes further than God will someday vindicate me and right all wrongs. The hope goes further than that. We come to a God knowing that he raised his son from the dead. He is mighty to save. He is patient to bear our most difficult emotions. And he is wise enough to sort them out and direct them more effectively when we do open our mouth, when we do act. The believer brings the hardest things to God in prayer because God's a big boy because God can handle it. So bring to him the difficult dynamics you wrestle with in your soul. Triangle God into the difficult relationships and dynamics of your life and ask for his help. I know that sounds simple, but have we done it and do we do it? And when was the last time you did it? Knowing that he saves, knowing that he will vindicate, knowing that he hears his beloved children, Let's, let's bring our deepest and heaviest thoughts to him in prayer. And I invite you to pray with me right now. Father, we begin here. We confess to you that um, sometimes we're embarrassed by the thoughts that, that come up. Sometimes we're troubled by our thoughts. And Father, we, we, we admit that often our strongest emotions are, are wieldy beasts we cannot tame and cannot ride well. We fall off, we injure ourselves, we trample other people. We don't want to do that, Father, but quite often we don't know what to do. So help us to get back to the basics and to take it to you in prayer. Forgive us for all the times that we have sought 
other arenas in which to fight our most difficult emotions. Father, we want to repent of that. We ask now for the faith, for the hope, to bring those things to you. And would you please sort them out? You are mighty to save. You are, you are wise enough. And we believe you will vindicate us as you vindicated our Lord, our risen Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, take all of this complication and help us to surrender it to you. In Jesus' name, amen.